0: Welcome to Further Reading, Craft, Creativity, and the Writing Life, a podcast from the University of King's College MFA program. On today's show, we talk to Kirstine McLeod. Kirstine is a longtime journalist and author whose work has spanned a wide variety of subjects. In early 2021, she turned her journalist's lens on something she'd been thinking about for many years the idea of retreat. Examining it from a spiritual, artistic, geographical, religious, practical, and social perspective, Kirstine wrote a comprehensive take on the idea of solitude just when we were all experiencing it ourselves. In Praise of Retreat, Finding Sanctuary in the Modern World is a book for anyone thinking about their creative and spiritual practices, and is especially helpful for the writer often scrambling to find moments of solitude to engage in their craft. Christine joins us today to talk about the creative process, the business of writing, and the sometimes fuzzy lines between fiction and nonfiction. Welcome to the show, Christine. It's great to have you here and to talk about writing with you.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me, Jillian. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Well, why don't we start by talking about your early writing life, how you came to be a writer, uh, if you want to talk about your, say, fascination with it, and then how you actually started in the profession.
1: Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, one of my friends calls me an accidentalist. So often the way that things transpire for me, it isn't necessarily according to plan. So I think you'll probably hear that in, <laughs> in some of that uh, explanation of how I came to be a writer. Um, I came from a family that really loved stories and I was always a big reader when I was a kid. And I still consider a library card to be among the greatest of riches um, to this day. I'll never forget the thrill of having a library card and coming home with stacks of books. I don't really recall uh, writing anything when I was younger except a diary that I kept in grade two. And uh, my mother found it recently in a box and gave it to me. And all it said was Rex did tricks every single day for about a year. (laughs) So I got to say I didn't start out as a very inspired writer. um and (laughs) then in grade school I studied yeah yeah. so it was kind of like you know pretty lackluster but apparently I really thought that was an important thing to note every day (laughs) (laughs) um and then when I was in grade school I I really did well in school and English and math were my two things but I was I couldn't understand why I'd be good in math because I had no interest in it in what at all but English I was very interested in so some of my teachers were encouraging me in that direction Um, And then when I was in high school, I was a real truant and a brat. And I actually got kicked out of my school and um, I, my high school. And um, I ended up um, at the downtown art school in London, Ontario. And people used to call the school drug city. And it actually (laughs) ended up being my saving grace. Like I had the best teachers. Like there was an understanding of an artistic life there. I had fantastic English teachers And I really fell in love with literature, which until then had been kind of a private passion um, because I didn't really know what to do with that. I mean, I come from a pretty working class family of practical people. I don't know if I was a strange egg or what, but I just am not the most practical person and have a more artistic personality. So, you know, my family was nurses and policemen and insurance uh, people. And I'm actually the first person who went to university in my family. So, it wasn't even a given that I was going to university, um, but I remember being in class at the end of grade 13, because it was still grade 13 then, and um, the teacher was going around and asking us what we were going to do with our lives after school. And I was planning to travel, but I felt like I needed to say something like a profession, because that's what everyone else was doing. Um And I had a vague idea that I wanted to write, but in those days, there was really no such thing as a creative writing program, and English seemed hopeless because I needed to make a living somehow. So I was sitting there thinking, God, what am I going to say? And um, there was this really loudmouthed youth named, um, I think her name was Liz Schroeder, and when it came to her turn, she said, I'm going to be a journalist. And I sat there thinking, hmm, that's interesting. And when they got to me, I said, I'm going to be a journalist. <laughs> so I took off and went to Europe for a year, and then I came back and um, and went to journalism school at Ryerson and uh, did a did a bachelor of applied arts in magazine journalism. And uh, yeah, and then I became a professional writer after I graduated uh, from that course in 1986.
0: Wow. So, And then you went on to work in particular publications, or did you start out as freelance, or what transpired after that?
1: Yeah, so um, I was taught by a lot of really great professors. I was really lucky uh, with my educational uh, influences. So there was a a guy named Don Obe, who had been an editor at Toronto Life magazine, and his partner Lynn Cunningham was teaching at Ryerson at the time. So all of our teachers were really well-connected in the magazine industry and would really try to educate us and, get, and help us get jobs. So um, my first job was actually at Toronto Life magazine. So I was there for um, six months or something uh, when I first graduated. And that was a really great place to learn. Um, um, and then the other thing, but I just having a set job wasn't really what I wanted. And in those days, I don't really know how it is now. The staff jobs were mainly editing jobs. And then if you wanted to write, you were, you were freelancing. So after about six months, uh, I uh, started freelancing and the McLean Hunter building was really close. What was now is Rogers, but it used to be the McLean Hunter building and it was really close to Ryerson. So all of us would go there like a pack of wolves, (laughs) just worrying all the editors to death and trying to find what work we could get. Um, So that's how I ended up as a freelance writer and editor as well, freelance editor um, at fashion magazines that were part of the McLean Hunter empire at McLean's magazine. I was an editor there. And then I started working for a lot of business publications like the Financial Post in my early years, uh, mainly because they had lots of work. the magazine industry was really in a big state of transition around the time that I graduated. It basically, you know, this is the Gen Xer refrain, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. there was a kind of golden age of magazines that lasted from the 20s and 30s right up until about the time I graduated. <laughs> so <laughs> I had a couple of good years, and then, you know, the recession and various factors, you know, meant that the magazine industry changed quite a bit. So it became Sometimes less a matter of what I actually wanted to do than a matter of where there was work and what I could do. And of course, in a bad economy, it's the business publications that tend to actually have budgets. So I ended up getting quite a lot of work at the Financial Post, which was a weekly newspaper at the time.
0: Hmm. And so how did that sort of compare with like what you were interested in writing about? Because you refer to when I was reading Retreat, I noticed just this little moment where you referred to being a, a bored um, fashion magazine writer. So if that was dull and, <laughs> and you sort of landed in business, like what, you know, and, and finance, um, how did those subjects sort of um, m- match up against what you were interested in writing about, I guess?
1: Yeah, well, this is another sort of thing. I sometimes feel like it's karmic with me, but I spend a lot of time trying to get out of places I feel like I'm being prepared for that I don't want to be. And this was kind of another example of that. So, it's kind of like when I got kicked out of school, I was in a, you know, I was in a neighborhood where everybody started to become interested in who had a big house or a pool or nice shoes or all the things I wasn't interested in. And it kind of ended up being the same thing when I graduated from journalism school. And I mean, partly it was that the economy had changed. So you did what work you could get as a freelancer. But partly it was because I think I'm kind of rebellious and I was probably very sullen and resentful and I hated authority and routine. And, um, you know, so, you know, like wherever I was, I was going to feel dissatisfied because I really wanted to have an interesting life. I thought, you know, to be... I was kind of schooled in the, in the new journalism. So, you know, Tom Wolfe or Joan Didion or, you know, all these uh, new journalists, you know, Hunter S Thompson, who used the techniques of fiction to write creative nonfiction. And, you know, magazines had budgets and they had really good standards um of practice the craft was really good and that was the world that i felt like i was prepared for so you know for many decades real writers wrote for magazines also so you would always see your work in the mag- in the magazines and not to say it was completely hopeless like i did get a lot of good assignments i worked for equinox magazine as a mm. freelancer and did some really great like science and nature things and talking to really in- interesting environmental activists and I used to work for the industrial, uh, sort of the um, International Development Research Center. They had a magazine, so I would do some international work. You know, if I was in Brazil or something, I would sometimes write about their projects. So that was kind of more the work that I was interested in. Um, but it just got more and more difficult to find that kind of work. So as a result, um, I just felt like a misfit uh, working for the Financial Post um, amid people who actually were interested in. Uh, in business type subjects, and I always was a misfit. I would have like esoteric books on the edge of my desk or something when I worked in the office, and people <laughs> were just, you know. I remember somebody once saying to me, "You're so weird," and and the feeling was mutual. <laughs> I just found the people there so weird, but yeah, but it was you know good to learn and things. And then one day, this was a real turning point for me. Um, there was this really nice fellow who knew a lot about mutual funds, and everybody taught like treated him like a god because he knew about mutual funds and nobody else did. And uh, so he would get lots of work and he was a freelancer. And uh, he said to me once, you know, like, if you want to actually make some money as a freelancer and not be exhausted and burned out the way that everybody was uh, all the time, he said, I really suggest that you go and take the Canadian securities course, which is what the stockbrokers take, right? So you learn all about business. Then you can write about mutual funds and you can – You know, have your own little fiefdom and everybody will think you're God. And he was trying to be kind and he was kind, but maybe not in the way that he meant because that really woke me up. I just thought I am on the most inappropriate possible trajectory for me. (laughs) I don't fit in here. This is not what I had in mind at all, you know? And here I am back to this, uh, this same theme in my life. So, I sat at my desk and I thought, what is it that I want? And I said to myself, I decided I wanted to do something more physical and more metaphysical. So there's always been like a thread of, like I started um, practicing yoga. I didn't realize that was my secret curriculum when I was at Ryerson, right? So that thread has always been there, wanting something more physical and metaphysical. So what I came up with was, while I was working at the Financial Post, I went to study part-time at the Shiatsu School of Canada. And while I was there, I met uh, my now husband of 30 years, um, and we ended up moving to Brazil shortly afterwards. (laughs) So I still freelanced, and I was back and forth, and it was a really chaotic time in my life, but it did really help to kind of change my trajectory to be a bit closer to what I had imagined, which was having an interesting life, traveling. You know, the world felt like... um, it was very broad. And when I was in my cubicle in Toronto, it felt very narrow. So I was starting to move toward something that felt more like it made more sense for me personally, than some of the career related decisions I could have made to be on stronger financial footing or to have a a more set career. Um, I always opted for having a good adventure, I was quite restless. And um, yeah, and just kind of couldn't sit still really in those years when I was in my 20s and 30s so yeah so that's how I ended up uh kind of jumping that track a little bit
0: (laughs) wow okay so I mean this brings up a couple of different questions for me one is craft related which is how how was it working as a freelance editor in those days like how would you come about getting a job and and doing the work and and balancing that against also writing because I guess to me I always think of editors as as being kind of in place and staff at a publication um, especially in the magazine world Mm -hmm. yeah so how so how did that work well it
1: used to be that um, that there were freelance editors who came in so when they were putting the paper to bed because it was a weekly and it was quite big in the old days they used to have compositors who actually got text that was on these wax strips, and they would have to cut it out and actually use their x knives to lay it out. Mm-hmm. And so I had a job, for instance, as a proofreader. Um, so, you know, we'd be there sometimes for 14 hours, and everybody'd be smoking, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in this small room. So, you know, there were freelance editing positions. I was a freelance editor at uh, at McLean's Magazine, a copy editor and a proofreader as well so that was um, there were a couple of in-house people but then they would supplement it with uh, with outside freelancers so yeah there were um, positions like that so I usually was doing copy editing and proofreading and I did that freelance for a lot of publications and it was a really great way to bolster the freelance earnings because the writing earnings um, you know it it was really time-consuming and labor-intensive you know, at least this, you had an hourly rate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you you figured it out, you didn't end up making like minus five cents an hour or something. (laughs) So it was actually really nice and mutually supportive. So the rates, you know, were, the rates have been the same. And actually they've gotten less. It used to be a dollar a word when I first was uh, working, like for a bigger publication and maybe 50 cents a word for a trade publication. And the, um, the articles were a lot longer that we got assigned. So you could kind of eke out a living but you know it wasn't easy and some people from my um from my class year were very successful but I don't think they were probably as sullen and anti-authoritarian and rebellious and obnoxious frankly <laughs> as I could be <laughs> and probably you know like instead of fitting a bit like a drop of oil in water they probably actually found you know ways to successfully do it but I just I just couldn't
0: I love that I am finding out this side of you <laughs> as you talk because it's not as obvious in your writing <laughs> so it's yeah very very thrilling to me I love I love rebels <laughs> um that's and, funny <laughs> uh so you brought up you know just at the end there like the other question that I had out of out of this topic which is you're in Toronto and you know, it's not an easy place to live now, certainly. And, and, and I think this has been building for a long time. And so I guess I'm just curious about like trying to exist, not just in Toronto, but in a big city as a writer, eventually you, you left and just sort of what were your feelings as things were changing and, Your sense of being an an artist and a writer in a big urban environment, and what drove you to eventually leave?
1: Yeah, um, I really loved living in Toronto. I lived there for 20 years. I went there uh, when I started school and I stayed until my early 40s. And I just loved Toronto. And I had no intention of leaving, in fact. Um, But sometimes, like I said, things I don't do things I'm an accidentalist thing, you know, opportunities come up. Sometimes in a in a kind of surprising way, and I take them, or or I have um, something that's still not conscious that I'm acting on, and I think both of those things happened uh, when it came to my departure from Toronto. So one of the things that made it really hard to have the kind of artistic life that I wanted, and I realized about two, within two years of starting to freelance after graduation that I I felt like I wished I'd done something that had more potential for creativity. I couldn't find the freedom. Um, and the creativity I was looking for, uh, in my journalism work. And, you know, like I said, other people possibly could have, but I just couldn't. Um, so I started to think, um, that I just wanted a little more peace. I turned 40 by this time. And that is a time that a lot of people feel like they just want a little more breathing space. Um, and so I started sort of dreaming about that, and. Um, but I was really a dyed-in-the-wool urbanite. I, I like cities a lot, and I just had no thought of really leaving. Um, but two of my friends started looking for a house out of in the country, uh, near Apsley. They ended up living up uh, up north uh, in the Coarthas. And my husband and I used to go on their real estate finding trips. So we realized that we couldn't afford a house in Toronto, but we probably could afford like something small in the woods, like a, a little cabin. And um So by serendipity, we actually ended up finding this cabin in the woods and buying it. Um, And we just sort of met a real estate person, and he ended up selling us a place that's next door to him. He's our neighbor. So he's in my book. His name is Merv. And, you know, he was our real estate agent. Um, And then shortly after that, the cabin started to kind of work a spell on us. And we started to really start to love a quieter life and see possibilities that we didn't have in the city. So I know it sounds ridiculous, but basically I moved to Kingston to become a writer. (laughs) A lot of people go to Paris, right? (laughs) I ended up coming to Kingston to do it. And the way that it happened was um, we were looking for somewhere closer to the cabin that we might live and Again, we weren't really serious. We came to Kingston in the summer, and it was absolutely beautiful here. You know, the sailboats are on the water, and there's music outside, and the patios and all the limestone. And um, we took an uh, alternate route back to Toronto. So we took the Glenora Ferry, which goes to Prince Edward counties. And when we were on the ferry, I said, I said, why don't I get a job in uh, Kingston and, and we'll move to Kingston? And, you know, just goofing around. And my husband said, yeah, okay. And the next day I went to talk to an editor I'd never met at Cottage Life magazine. Her name was Penny. And uh, so we got talking because I had an assignment to do for them. And I, uh, mentioned that I'd been in Kingston and uh, and she said oh she said I was just there and she mentioned this mutual friend that we had that we didn't know we had in common and she just had lunch with him and he lived in Kingston. And, and I just looked shocked. And she said, what? And I said, I was just on the boat last night saying, why don't I move to Kingston, right? I'll get a job and I'll move to Kingston. And she said, well, why don't you call him and see, you know, if there's freelance work or what it's like to live there and stuff. And he actually was one of the first people I worked for uh, when I graduated from journalism school. So, you know, I'd known him for a long time, and he was working at Queen's in Communications. So my first job was doing some freelance work at Queen's in Communications. And within six months, the house we were renting got sold right at Christmas. So we had a choice of either finding a new place in Toronto or taking a leap just to see if we liked Kingston. So we took the leap, and uh, we thought we'd stay here for a year, Uh, and that was in 2003, (laughs) 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 and we're still here so yeah it was one of those really strange things and it has been like the best move I could have made for my artistic self like I just had too many um, assignments too much going on needed too much money to live you know it was just too difficult to make it work the way I wanted to I needed more quiet I needed more breathing space so between this cabin in the woods and the move to Kingston now I kind of feel like you know i've I've started I've made the space in my life to teach yoga. That's my um thing that I do uh, for money, probably as much or more than freelance writing at the moment. And then that buys me the time to and this breathing space to actually do the more creative projects, like my book of short fiction and my latest book, which is a kind of a hybrid book of uh, nonfiction and uh, memoir and uh, yeah, so. Yeah, so it's kind of a serendipitous way that things worked out, but I think that I'd been really wanting that and not able to figure out how to do it. And I feel like, you know, I was kind of led in a direction and I really, you know, took those opportunities um, because it felt like an adventure as well, which I always like. And we could always move back to Toronto. That's what we
0: said. So, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, that's, I I love hearing about that because I think it's something we neglect in our discussions of craft. You know, it's always sort of productivity focused and how we can create a nice Mm -hmm. space in our house and find the time within our busy schedules and make writing happen in often sort of hostile conditions to that. And we don't think about that bigger external environment necessarily and how much that can be conducive to us finding that breathing room to actually make the writing we want to do happen. So um, yeah. this this naturally leads us to talk talking about your, your book, Retreat. So how did you come up with the idea for that book?
1: Yeah, um, so the Retreat book actually evolved out of my experiences in my early years uh, up at this cabin. So as I mentioned, you know, I was a dyed-in-the-wool urbanite I couldn't really understand why I'd done this. And at first, um, sometimes I'd be inside the cabin and the deer flies would be terrible. And I'd think, What have I done? I haven't signed up for this. This is insane. What am I doing in this place? And then we thought that friends would like to come there and spend some time in the wilderness and everybody hated it. They came once, you know, and they were just like, No running water, no electricity, all these bugs. Forget it. Um, so you know, I just wasn't attuned to it. It just seemed like a crazy thing to do. And then gradually, the place started to work on me. And I started to really discover that there was this whole dimension I hadn't even realized that was there. So, you know, in many of our lives, especially, I was always in deadline driven environments in journalism, uh, and busy and making lots of things happen and really active. So the social inactive, I I kind of started to feel like we over venerate that when there's a lot to be said for the more solitary and reflective side of life. And that's what I really started to discover at my cabin. So I wrote an essay that was called Green Cathedral, and it was about what had happened to me at the cabin. And uh, there's a poet called Mary Oliver, and she, uh, one of her um, essays, she says that uh, attention is the beginning of devotion and that was certainly the case for me the more I paid attention to nature the more I started to really fall in love with it and the more I started to see life instead of in a kind of fragmented rushed breathless way which had always been the way that I'd operated um, I started to sort of see the connections between things and the web of life and it really changed me uh, fundamentally and profoundly uh, changed my way of looking at things so I'd written this essay about that and uh and i thought i would just continue in that direction i'd write a whole book like so the essays in my book at early on and i thought that i would just continue on that vein writing about observations from the cabin and how like you know a retreat to nature can transform your perspective in ways that are really important um Because right now with, you know, environmental degradation and threats, you know, like I kind of think it's really important that we pay attention and that we become devoted and fall in love with the natural world. And then that starts to guide our actions when we're in our everyday life. So that was kind of my goal was to write a book about those themes from the cabin. Um, But then as I kind of let it percolate uh, and kept thinking about it. Um, I kind of, so instead of this lyrical book that centered at the cabin, I started to think about the idea of retreats in general. And I realized that I felt like they had kind of saved me and helped me move toward my artistic life and a life that was more congruent for me. And that that was kind of my little islands of attention and space that I've had, like, oh, even over the years where I was trying to make a living as a freelancer or traveling and things were really chaotic. Um, so I started to think about that and I thought, oh, I went to Costa Rica when I wanted to have a bit of a think about uh, how my journalism career was going when I was a fashion freelancer, you know, which seemed to me ridiculous again. Like, what am I doing that for? So that's what I do. I take myself off. And then, you know, I've been on lots of yoga retreats as well and meditation retreats in order to study something that's really important to me um, outside of the busyness of my everyday life. So I thought, oh well, that's kind of interesting. Um, As far as I know, no one has ever written about the actual phenomenon of retreats. Um, So at that point, I broadened the idea to what retreats can offer to modern people, because I'd experienced that. And I thought maybe a wider treatment would be interesting. Um, Yeah. And so at that point, that was when I actually um, pitched the idea to ECW Press, I wrote a proposal. And I had a couple of chapters. I had the Green Cathedral essay and I had the yoga uh, memoir kind of sections of the book written. Um, And so with the proposal that I really spent a lot of time on and those three chapters, I actually managed to sell the book to ECW and get a commission. So, So that's one of the joys of nonfiction. You don't necessarily have to have the whole book finished. But so, a well considered proposal and some pretty indicative of what was to come chapters were enough to make that happen.
0: That's great. Um, And I I should just ask too uh, you don't have an agent, is that correct? You did this all on your own?
1: No, I don't have an agent. Um, So, like, I'd written a book of short stories and I had sent that around to try to get agents. There aren't very many in Canada. So, if anyone wants to get an agent, I seriously, um, I really recommend trying to do it because it doesn't take long like they have different requirements you can see it on their websites you know what i mean and then you can send them a pitch and if they all don't think it's marketable enough or you don't have a i think it's called a platform they're looking for a way that you can sell then they'll tell you and then you kind of know that you're on your own or you could try us ones if you just want to do a fishing trip like there's absolutely no harm in doing it uh as long as you don't let yourself be crushed <laughs> if mm-hmm. they say no. <laughs> but I just thought, you know, with most of like ECW, I started with a small publisher. ECW is a really solid mid-sized publisher. There aren't many of those in Canada. Um, but I just figured, you know, the advances aren't very high. So if I could do it without an agent myself, I'd prefer to do that. And then who knows, maybe I'll be able to get an agent in the future based on, you know, that the, this book has done well um so yeah I just kind of I'm used to pitching magazine stories I guess so I just thought well wow, this is kind of like an expanded pitch
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah that that's what it is and it and it's nice because then when you go to start writing the book of course you have that roadmap ahead of you that you used as your proposal and uh it can make the daunting task of writing the book a little bit easier to approach um so yeah, yeah sorry
1: Um, I was just going to say, although um, the good thing about it also is you don't necessarily have to be tied to what you put in the proposal. So in my case, this book went from being a kind of lyrical riff, you know, to being something that involved a lot of research. So in the writing, the scope expanded again. <laughs> so when I realized that retreat has a fascinating history, and that humans have always retreated, I went a little bit bonkers. I just thought that it was really important to say it. And I probably like really overdid it. Um, <laughs> But um, luckily, my editor uh, has nerves of steel. And so when she saw all the extra stuff, <laughs> she was uh, experienced enough editor to know that it it was good to expand the scope, but maybe I should take some of it out. So, there's one chapter that almost broke me. I was trying to write a chapter called "A Short History of Monasticism," <laughs> and even as I was writing it, I knew that it probably wasn't going to end up in the book. So, if you look at the notes in the book, there's all this stuff about all these hermits and Saint Anthony and like the Desert Fathers and all this stuff. So, right. so that's always a good thing too. If you have extraneous stuff, you can just put it in your notes afterwards. <laughs> Yeah. So that was nice that I didn't actually have to feel like I was stuck to the proposal. That was, you know, it evolved and they understand that that can happen. So that was really great. I love that aspect of it, that it could be it could be what it needed to be. You know, sometimes you talk about poems, like what does the poem want to be or what serves the poem? The book really felt like that. You know, I wanted to keep it simple and lyrical and focus kind of on language and it ended up getting totally in a different direction and being really like research heavy so who knows uh, I'm working on poetry now so hopefully <laughs> that'll help rein me in a little and do the language focus this time around but but yeah it's nice to allow it to organically be what it needs to be even if that can cause you a lot of trouble and, <laughs> of course. you know in the case of trying to write a short history of monasticism a couple months of hell. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah, let's let's dig in a little bit more to that research process because it ends up becoming a bit of a travel log and a kind of um, philosophy and history and a memoir and then sort of all of these different things come together but how did you go about approaching your research and once you had gathered data how did you sort through it and put it into narrative form
1: yeah um like everything else it kind of I don't know, like, I just kind of followed the energy of what was happening in my life. So it grew in stages. So first of all, I already had the essay Green Cathedral about my time at the cabin and how it transformed things for me, uh, especially with regards to the natural world. Um, and then and I had the yoga stories written as well. So then what I did was I kind of started to realize, like, once I broadened it, I kind of thought of it, Uh, in these categories. So I realized um, that if I was kind of writing a bit of a history of retreat, I couldn't start at the beginning of time because that would have just been hellish. So I decided to focus on the first Western retreaters, which was um, the time of early Christianity, so the desert fathers and mothers, uh, and then come up to the present time and what has evolved um, in this time uh, when it comes to retreat. So the first section of the book is called Old Ways, And so that's um, hermits, monks, and pilgrims. And then a little closer to our time were the naturalists, right? So nature retreats. So there's a whole lot of stuff about Thoreau and Emily Dickinson and some of the um, environmental writers like Rachel Carson and some of the people who have really influenced our views of nature and the ways that we retreat um, as well. John Muir, who was the father of national parks um and so retreats got more relatable at that stage the nature retreats and also arts retreats are a pretty institutionalized thing um you know uh, artists have always engineered the level of solitude that they need to do their work so some people would rather work in las vegas <laughs> some stimulating but many people actually like to take a step back so there was that history And then in more recent years, um, the influence of yoga and meditation have really influenced us in the West uh, in terms of um, the way that we retreat to study, perhaps. Um, So once I had it in my head that these were the basic sections that I was working on, um, I started to pull it together. And one thing that was a bit unfortunate was that the types of retreats that I knew most about, so nature, art, and yoga and meditation, were toward the end of the book. And the stuff I knew nothing about, which was the religious ways of retreat, um, ended up being at the beginning of the book. So I spent a lot of time uh, on that first part of the book. And I didn't really want it to be quite as big as it ended up being. Um, So it happened that I got a – so this is the way my research plans evolved. I happened to get a writing residency – a fellowship at the Hawthornden International Writers Retreat in Edinburgh for a month. So while I was there, uh, I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to write about this retreat. So I did. I wrote about the arts retreat. So in the arts retreat section, I've got the kind of memoir part of that is drawn from the castle and the experiences I had there. While I was there, I realized that if I wanted to write about hermits and pilgrims, then I was in a perfect place to do that. So this is a landscape that used to be absolutely dotted with hermit huts and pilgrim paths. And if I wanted to know about the history, then while I was there, it might be a good idea to do that. So I was looking for hermitage, which isn't easy to find, as you might guess in the modern day, where does one find a hermitage. And I came across... um, the webpage of a writer that I kind of would stalk sometimes because I really, I really like her work. Her name is Sarah Maitland. And she'd written a book called A Book of Silence that I just absolutely loved. And she lived in the south of Scotland. So not only did she take me along a pilgrimage route, so we met and she took me along a pilgrimage route. So I write about that in the pilgrimage chapter. Uh, But she has a hermitage because when her book came out, A Book of Silence, um, a lot of people wrote to her and said, where can I find silence? They just couldn't work out how to take a step back and where to go. So she actually is the leaseholder of this hermitage up in the north of Scotland that people can, you know, rent or borrow depending on on means. And uh, yeah, so she, she basically has that available for hermits. So I went up there and from there I wrote um, <clears throat> the memoir part of the hermitage chapter about what it was, what the experience of being a hermit was like. So the whole process was a bit like this. It depended you know, kind of what was happening and what opportunities presented themselves. Uh, And that was usually the way that the research went kind of organically. Um, I went to Brazil one Christmas thinking I was taking some time off, but I ended up going to the biggest pilgrimage site uh, in Brazil. It's the second biggest Catholic uh, church in the world after St. Peter's. So I went up there and ended up writing about pilgrimage So it was a bit like that, like it just kind of depended what else was going on in my life. And I worked my way uh, along filling, you know, and slowly, slowly, it started to be more like a a lawn of grass, you know, and I'd be filling in the little holes that still remained there until I had the whole book.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. I, you know, just this morning, I was talking to my writing group, and we were talking about pantsing versus plotting you know sort of flying by the seat of your pants or planning ahead Mm -hmm. and it feels like you strike a nice balance that you had this roadmap in front of you but then oh well (laughs) you know let's just sort of let things happen as as they want to and and I think that's a balance writers often struggle with um because they feel they have to adhere to the plan or they just don't know and they sort of throw themselves into the into the project
1: yeah, and for me like I find it impossible to work that way. Like there's always got to be that um I don't know, like there's an energy if like I always feel like I'm trying to follow the energy of things. You know, like that's how I ended up getting the cabin even though it seemed like a crazy idea to my conscious self. That's how I ended up in Kingston, you know, which has been the best thing. There's such a great artistic community here. It's a lot uh easier to live here. Uh, you know, for many reasons. And with the book, it was a similar thing. I mean, I was just kind of following the energy of what the currents were in my life. And, you know, and uh, I don't know, I like the excitement of that. If I was trying to execute my plan, I would just feel really bored and blocked. Mm. So I probably end up, you know, like compared to my friends who are writers who actually are more uh, planned I mean, they look at my process and think I'm nuts, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they're like, why kill the horses? And, you know, maybe in the future I won't have this process. But the first time that I do any kind of project, I allow myself to do it the exact way I want because it's the process to me that's the most important. So I don't know if it's because I wasn't really expected to necessarily go to university even. I wasn't really expected to do anything. So I don't think I have the same kind of pressures of, you know, succeeding and, all those kind of things that <laughs> maybe a lot of people who had, you know, their families had high expectations <laughs> or something for <laughs> their achievement, or maybe they have it, you know, there's a, like, there's a bit of a freedom in that. I think that yeah. uh, I, I allow myself like things work better for me when I'm what I, my friend calls an accidentalist, right? Like a book falls off the shelf and that's when I read and then that leads to <laughs> <laughs> so my process of the book was a bit like that, and I mean it was really hard work, and I'm sure I could have been more efficient. Um, but yeah, that that just is the process that works for me. So, and I could see it kind of taking shape. Like I often will have a big piece of paper on the wall, and so for a long time I had a big piece of paper on the wall that said "old ways," you know, and then it would say "hermitage," "pilgrimage," and um, and um, monasticism for moderns, I think, was the other category. And then I had the second circle, which was nature and arts, right? And then I had the third one, which is yoga and meditation. And then I would have little lines off that, with because I wanted each chapter to have some kind of a memoir-related part. So I'm talking about my personal experience, right, to share that because it's hard to really talk about inner transformative in- experiences, right, mm-hmm. in any way that makes sense. So I really thought the stories were important. Um, and then, you know, whatever I found uh, relevant and interesting to the history of retreat and how this is something that's fed us for millennia and our practice of retreat has really deep roots, you know, so anything that, you know, was uh, like that. And then the other thing I really wanted to include, so I think a good book depends on who's reading it. And, You know, that some of the ideas that are out there of what constitutes a good book, they do not match what I feel is a good book. So the kind of book that I wrote, many people would look at it and think there's a lot that's really extraneous in there that could come out or it's repetitive or something. I mean, I got to agree that I probably, frankly, if I could now, I would probably cut 50 more pages out of it. (laughs) But at the same time, that's the kind of book I like. I like a digressive book. I like a book that kind of goes in unexpected directions, is a bit idiosyncratic. Like these are the kind of books I like to read um and it's a really interesting time because there's kind of in this set way of looking at what constitutes what's a good story that's really getting blown up these days as we have people from different cultural traditions starting to have their voices heard and their ideas about what constitutes a good story heard and you know sometimes that will mean a more circular narrative that repeats things on purpose right to get a certain effect or things like that so i really feel like Um, I like the playfulness of that as well, you know, so part of my process would be to include things I just think are really interesting, um, -hmm. that many readers would probably think needed to come out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I, I take issue with that prescriptive way of thinking. Um, and as you're saying, many people are right now, you know, because I, I I always like the advice of write the book you want to read. Because obviously that book isn't out there yet. And so you're going to be very excited through the process. Even when it becomes a grind, you're still writing the thing that you really wanted Mm -hmm. to experience yourself. Um, So it's a a lovely way to think about approaching your writing and and, and letting things happen as they're supposed to. You know, you're just when you're talking about structure and this idea of of different potential structures and what makes a good story leads me sort of naturally to what I wanted to ask you next which was how does your nonfiction writing overlap or differ from your fiction writing and how do you think about those worlds and 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 by extension yourself as a writer and your identity as a writer
1: yeah, I feel like I'm always very much in process, you know, Jillian. So it's it's interesting. Um, I think this is probably a bit of an exercise I need to go through at this point in my writing career to start to think about that a little more clearly. Um, but the way I see myself in general, like cutting across all the genres that I write in, because I do write, you know, fiction and, and nonfiction and poetry, um, I see myself as a... Um, A writer of place and geographies in a very wide sense. So what I mean by that is um, I love writing about places and I love travel related things. So travel is a big thing for me. Um, But I also am really interested in what I consider the primary geography, which is the body, right? So the body is the place from which we experience uh, the world. So I look at inner and outer geographies in all of my work, like that's kind of what it's its covering. And then I really relate to the new nature writers. So I was born in Scotland. And um, I think that I kind of have a Scottish head in some ways, because many of the Scottish writers are writers of place, many of the British writers are doing what's called the new nature writing. So it's a bit of a combination of memoir, uh, travel writing sometimes, and, um, and nature writing as well. So, so that's kind of where I see myself working you know, is is kind of allied with that kind of working, uh, with that kind of work. Um, So I started out, you know, like being kind of schooled on the new journalists and the kind of work they were doing. So they were, you know, like Joan Didion and people like that. And they were using the techniques of fiction in order to uh, enhance their work. And that that sometimes pointed us, I think, as the rise of creative nonfiction, I think. So kind of like nonfiction stories that read like fiction and and using the same kind of craft. So that was kind of where I started, and I was really interested in doing that. The work that I ended up doing as a freelancer was more like standard magazine work and journalism work, more narrative, but not really using the techniques of fiction. And I wished that I could do something that felt more creative and inventive. Um, and then the more that I did my nonfiction work as a journalist, the more I started to realize that, you know, although we were taught that we were supposed to be objective, um, you know, we're selecting the facts that are going into something, which is, mm. <laughs> which is a very subjective process. So I started to think, wait a sec, you know, I started to really realize that that. Uh, you know, that that's a bit of an issue there. So I started to think, okay, I'm not just writing factual things, right? Like it's always going to be kind of subjective. And then when there started to be new research about the way that our memories work, um, that showed that every time we retrieve a memory, we change it. um, I found that really intriguing and interesting as well. So even the things that we remember as facts, it's kind of, You know, it's a bit unreliable. Mm -hmm. So I started to really think about this whole idea of fact and fiction, and you know, realizing that I think a lot of fiction has more truth in it than you know necessarily something that's fact based. That's fact based. Um, So I started to get really interesting in moving that line a little bit further um, away from the just the facts kind of narratives and playing around with that. And uh, so that's kind of what brought me to the animal game. So, you know, the animal game was kind of a a bit of an experiment in that blurry line that I think exists between nonfiction and fiction. And when you're, it's, it's a bit of an inflection, isn't it? You might, you know, there's, there's a bit of a line there that I was playing with. So most of the things in the animal game, my short stories um, actually did happen. Um, But the headspace that I brought to it was totally different than if I was writing something that I was thinking of as creative nonfiction. And it's a bit hard to explain what it is, but it's kind of like, um, I'm kind of influenced by like W.G. Sebald, you know, his Rings of Saturn I thought was wonderful and Rachel Cusk, her Outline series, you know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a fictionalized autobiography and she, um, Rachel Cusk, I thought it was really interesting. So she was eviscerated for a couple of her memoirs that she wrote. She's an yeah. uh, English writer and absolutely eviscerated. And then when she started writing autofiction, she was lauded as renovating fiction, you know, and like bringing it back to life and all this kind of stuff. So I right. found that interesting. Like that's a, that's a bit of an aside because that happened after, like after I wrote my book and was thinking about, wow, that's interesting that I did it that way, right? Right. And yeah. then I started learning that in some cultures, these distinctions don't even exist. Like, you know, like it's either prose or poetry right. and they don't really even separate it that way. So I started to think like it's kind of is this marketing and book industry distinctions distinctions, you know, that make it memoir or fiction and not auto fiction. So I just felt like it was really fun to play with that boundary so that I feel like that's what I'm always doing um but I mean I'm still schooled as a journalist so if you say it's true I feel like it better be as true as you can make it anyway right Mm -hmm. so like I couldn't have called this you know and I approached it differently there was more characterization than there probably would have been if I'd written it as straight nonfiction. yeah so I was moving that line a little so then it's funny that I jump next into a hybrid book, right? I like hybrid books too. So it's got, you know, some history, somebody said it was mostly a nature essay, which is the way I see it, like the sanctuary of the subtitle in my book, um, finding sanctuary in the modern world, it's meant to be a kind of call for an environmental consciousness overall. Um, you know, so it's it mixes up a lot of things, a lot of history And it's really funny to see how people respond. Some people were like, the history was so interesting. The memoir was boring. And other people were like, the memoir was so interesting. The history was so boring. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things you got to remember if you do something different or kind of hybrid is like you can't control how other people are going to respond to it. I guess true with any book, but very funny if you keep it undefined, right? You're going to get all that stuff. So I feel like I'm still really uh, like I have my roots in nonfiction because I really love it um but I really think a lot of these boundaries are blurry blurry and maybe uh not related to anything you know especially with creative nonfiction and and auto fiction I know a lot of people argue with that that there's no such thing as auto fiction you know that it's either Mm -hmm. fiction or it's autobiographical but but yeah, that's where I see it. I see it as more of a blurry line and an interesting place to um, to work when you're trying to think about what's fact and what's fiction really, or what's true, right? When you're trying to think about what's true, and you're trying to work with the fallibility of our memory, which you know adjusts itself. There's inconsistencies, uh, falsities, right, in our own um, in our own memories. And you know saying it was auto fiction kind of gave me room to permission to digress, which I always love as well.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> does yeah. that answer your question, Julian? Oh yes, well, I mean, it's got me thinking of of all kinds of things and and you know, I've been exploring this with my students quite a bit because you know many of them are writing mm-hmm. memoirs of some form or another and and sort of falter around. As you say, representing what they thought were factual memories, but also around representing the people who are close to them and and so, I think auto fiction feels like an attractive destination because you can you can sort of wear the fiction. Um, part of the book as a as a shield right from the scrutiny that you might get mm-hmm. once people start to read it and perhaps see themselves or start to make assumptions about you and your life and you know like and you, mm-hmm. you mentioned this being perhaps a western um sort of fascination this line between fiction and non-fiction and I wonder if it too comes out of our propensity for thinking about individual and celebrity as as the kind of um what what can entertain us right so what can we find out about this one person's life but yeah so so i guess what I, what i was thinking of in listening to you was how do you then if you're writing something like autofiction how do you navigate that tricky territory of representing say your partner or your family or your mother-in-law you know in in telling these stories what were the challenges for you
1: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, what you said about um, that sometimes your auto fiction can be a bit of a shield. I mean, um, I just want to say that a lot of people um, just kind of like some people understand that creative nonfiction means you can invent to a degree. Which is not my understanding. I've had many like arm wrestling arguments with people about this, right? So a lot of people just don't even flag it that it's auto fiction. You know, they just say it's memoir. So that's also an interesting thing, right? Um, but when it came to my when it comes to my work, um, I just have a policy that um, I just write it, and I'm going to worry about these concerns afterwards. And in my case, that's worked fine. So. Uh, afterwards so I've written it and then I make various decisions afterwards on a case by case basis so in some cases I've opted to hope they don't read it <laughs> <laughs> um, in other cases I've changed a name because I was afraid it might impact someone's business in a way that I didn't feel was fair um, I've removed something if it wasn't important to the story anyway mm-hmm. you know because I thought well why like poke someone in the eye if it doesn't even really add to my story mm. Um and i've shown the draft to someone as well that i just was concerned about how they might remember it and um you know like if they remember it the same way as you do then you've got a fact check basically and if they don't then you can think about what you're going to do about it because everybody of course has different memories even from the same family right if you talk to your siblings or whatever they remember everything different Mm -hmm. um but that said like even though i write it and worry about it afterwards If there is a real reason to pre-think it, I think this is a topic to discuss like really in detail with a close writing friend or a mentor, because otherwise it's going to impede you, right? Because you're going to be worrying about this uh, as you write, and it's really important not to censor yourself, I think. Um, So, you know, if there's a really pressing reason that you really need to get that kind of worked out to the best of your ability first, then I would say, really, you know, like work that out with somebody else uh, mm-hmm. that you trust. But, you know, it's kind of funny. Like, my husband, though, he doesn't. I used to really want complete privacy when I wrote, when I was newer to the work and I just felt weird about what I was doing. And so he's so used to giving me complete privacy. And I would say, don't even read what's on my desk or just don't, you know, I was really kind of paranoid about it. So he's so used to that. And he's also kind of an argumentative person. So he knows that anything I show him, he'll probably say it wasn't like that or whatever. So he doesn't even look at it. And um, there's this one scene, just to give you an example, in, in Praise of Retreat where people are coming to the cabin and Marco's wearing pink shorts and he looks really wild and he's, he's sharpening his ax <laughs> and looking sort of threatening, you know? So people will say to him, pink shorts, say hey, Marco, and he'll look like what? <laughs> so like this is the first that he hears about it. Right. So it's really funny. It's become like a game among our friends to make up stuff that actually isn't in the book and <laughs> just to freak him out that like that I described him in this way. Right. right. So, yeah. So, so far, you know, so far so good, but, (laughs) um, but as long as it doesn't censor what you're doing, I think that's the important thing.
0: Yes, for sure. I'm, I'm very much in agreement with that. Um, so can I turn now to ask you about the connections between writing and retreat and also yoga for you? Like in what ways do those practices overlap and, and generate the same kind of, um, mindset or or creative space for you? And then how do they differ in your in your life? Yeah,
1: well, maybe I'll start with like the writing and retreat. So for me, like retreat is that was the it's really hard to find, excuse me, secular language to talk about what I think of as kind of sacred space. Um, And retreat was the best term I could come up with. But to me, retreat is kind of like sanctuary, or another word that comes closer to the meaning that I mean is uh, temenos, which is a Greek word, and it's a garden, an enclosure that was for a specific deity. So the way I think of retreat is that it's like a space for what's most meaningful uh, to you in life, uh, a place that you can take a step back from your social and active life to be in a more solitary, reflective place. Um, and for me that means writing Uh, it also means movement including yoga Uh, and it means nature so so I guess the answer is that writing is one of those things that I do in my temenos or my retreat or my sanctuary space Um, and it's its own kind of sanctuary so many of us you know find uh, transcendence in the arts and I would say that includes me as well so I really find transcendence in in writing and art uh, in my movement practices. So yoga, and uh, I've just started a two-year training in the Feldenkrais method, which is another method of somatic movement that relates to you know, self-inquiry. Uh, so that's a really important part of my life as well. Uh, and yeah, spending time in nature, those are kind of my three meaningful activities uh, that I do in my retreat space um and like you said the retreat space like sometimes it's helpful to go to a physical place uh but the more you do that the easier it is to get into that space of heart and mind and for me my life was always really quite busy and chaotic and i could just never settle enough so that kind of brings me to the answer to your question about integrating yoga with writing so um you know, my yoga and my writing seemed to move together in changing ways. Uh, at first, uh, yoga gave me the stability that I didn't have in life that I really needed to do creative work. I was too all over the place. Uh, and, you know, yoga actually is a way for many people of just gaining stability. Uh, so that was extremely helpful. Um, and then as my writing work progressed, yoga and writing were kind of separate things, but they were a good combination so you sit and write and then you get up and move and breathe at some point so just you know from the very um, level of health and headspace it was a really good combination Uh, and I really think it's important to have some kind of a they're like complementary practices your writing practice and your yoga practice are kind of similar you know you show up at your computer or at your paper you show up on your yoga mat and it's like a discipline. You just do it. You don't really think about it, which gets rid of a lot of your resistance. And they felt like mutually supportive things. Um, but recently, they've started to come together in new ways. Uh, and I feel like yoga and, you know, movement studies have become an important source of literary, literary ideas for me. Um, so I'm working on a poetry manuscript now that's more or less... I don't know, I think it's about embodied life in the 21st century. Um, And, you know, other ideas that I have for books are more related to my movement and kind of body as geography, as well as my writing of place. Um, So, yeah, the, the, the yoga practice has really kind of changed and morphed and being part of my writing practice as well.
0: Hmm. That's really lovely. And, and do you bring that to your teaching as well? Like, do you try to create space or encourage writing practice and discipline with your students when you're teaching yoga? Or is that something you keep separate?
1: Um, well, it's interesting because some of my students are writers. And <clears throat> so I've done, you know, a yoga and relaxed writing workshops at the Kingston Writers Fest. Um, to try to, you know, help people to get into a better state of relaxation and kind of get under the tossing waves Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the deeper place where the water is more calm, you know, to access the writing. And um, just recently I taught a workshop at Kingston Writers Fest that was about um, self-compassion and the artistic life. And so that involved um, transferring some of the principles of yoga into your writing practice, like joining those two things as practices so yeah, it does come into things that I do in a variety of ways. Uh, the two of them do seem to me like um, really relatable practices. I mean, having a writing life or an artistic life of any kind can be really difficult mm-hmm. and really challenging. and <clears throat> I think it's really important to have supportive routines. So yeah, so definitely I kind of integrate uh, those things not only in you know in my new work, going forward um the animal game my, my book of short stories does have some yoga related content in it so does in praise of retreat um, but it seems to be more and more a direction that those two streams are, are are starting to work together in in interesting ways uh so yeah i'm trying to create a website right now and it's kind of difficult because I don't know whether to have two separate websites for mm-hmm. writing and yoga, but they cross over a lot. So right. it's really funny. The designer and I had a meeting yesterday and trying to figure out where to put stuff is really hard right now because the two streams are starting to flow together and it's really hard to, uh, to separate them anymore.
0: Yeah. We, we need the the internet to catch up with your thinking and become maybe a little bit more yeah. <laughs> conducive. <laughs> <Porous>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I'd love to talk about your writing group too, just in terms of both discipline and community. So, um, you, uh, regularly meet with this writing group, but I, I'm sort of curious as to its, um, emergence and, and, uh, and how it operates, I guess.
1: Yeah. So, um, the writing group that I belong to is kind of, um, the writers that I'm in the poetry group with all write in different genres, but it is mainly a poetry group. So, I have um I think that having artistic friends is really important. So uh this group has been more for my poetry. So I literally would not have any poetry probably if it wasn't for this group mm. because I've been busy doing other things like the book of short stories or the book of nonfiction. And I actually have like uh other friends um that I work with um that are more related to my books that I've produced so far. But um, so I walk in the morning every morning with a friend and her dog and we do what we call story labs. So we talk about what we're working on. If we have any problems, we discuss it and then we go home and we sit down and work. Right. Wow. So, you know, from my most recent book, like that was definitely like my, you know, key influence or I have another friend I get together with and we just share whatever we're working on every week to kind of keep ourselves going. But it kind of feels like the writing group, the Villanelles is a different thing. like instead of just you know one-on-one friendships we're almost like um we've evolved into what I think of as a almost like a mutual aid society Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's really fantastic so the group started originally about 15 years ago I just moved to Kingston and uh, Sarah Sarah Tiang uh, had also just moved to Kingston so she's a well-known poet with uh, three books I think at this point three books yeah Another one coming out in the spring actually will be the third. Um, And so she wanted to meet some writers. So she just put up um, uh, in the – we have a great independent bookstore called Novel Idea, which I think is a wonderful name. Mm -hmm. They have a bulletin board. So she put up a bulletin saying, you know, poetry group, you know, all welcome, whatever it said. And then it had the phone numbers that you rip off at the bottom. Yeah. So I wanted to learn about writing poetry. So I took one of those and it took me ages to call her and I eventually called her. And um, so I started working with that group and there have been times that we've, you know, stopped for a while and then started again. But right now um, the group has really coalesced. So uh, all of, none of us were even published, I don't think, when we started and people have kind of come and gone from the group. Uh, But at the moment, everybody uh, in the group really committed writers writing in many different genres, including, you know, creative nonfiction and essays and fiction. Um, So and uh, young adult fiction as well. Um, So what we do is we get together, we try to get together uh, once a week. Uh, We've been doing it through Zoom over the pandemic. And we're actually finding that that's super convenient because a lot of people have kids and things and it makes it a lot easier to schedule it. And what we do is we bring a poem, and we uh, we workshop it. and the word workshop seems really appropriate when it comes to this group, because it's like, we're all fascinated by everybody else's inventions, right? So you bring something in and you're like, here's this poem. Like I want it to fly and then do a double leap and then it flies, but it doesn't do the leap. And everybody, (laughs) you know, watches it crash and kind of says, okay, well, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? So it's a very supportive group. And, um, at the level of craft, um, they teach me everything I know about poetry. I didn't do I didn't do an MFA program, um, and there's a lot I don't know. And I just learned so much from these women, many of them who have done an MFA. And, um, yeah, so from a, a craft perspective, it's wonderful. I've learned so much and we often do things together. Like, um, Sarah comes up with these crazy challenges. Like one February, she said, let's write a poem a day and see how that goes. So we actually managed to write a poem a day, uh, just to see how that was. And then we changed the challenge slightly the next February and, you know, we've gotten together to share short stories as well, or if anybody needs anything to be looked at, because they're sending, you know, a magazine piece out or something like that, or, you know, if you're not sure about a poem, and everybody says it's done, then you know that you can send it. These are things that Mm -hmm. we just really help one another with. And we're very involved in one another's lives at this point, as well. So yeah, so I think of us kind of as this brilliant fire that I gather around every, you know, once a week, and I really think that that's a super important thing. Like if you're really going to do the marathon and the difficulty of having an artistic life, I think, um, you know, I think it's a complete myth, this whole idea of the solitary genius. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's not as much fun either. (laughs) 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 So I really think like finding people, you know, who you can work with. And I mean, it's taken a while to develop the group to this point where, you know, it's working the way that it is. Um, because it is, you know, it never ends up being a mild a mind meld. You know, you can really hear the very individual voices and ways of approaching the poems in the workshop, and um, you know, and it's great. Like if somebody's struggling with something, it's really it's really great to have somebody to like uh, commiserate with you when something lousy happens, or if somebody was an idiot to you, then you send it out and. The, the group is called the Villanelles and everybody just says, yeah, I hate that too. <laughs> <laughs> or, or um, you know, or alternately, like if good things happen, we're so all identified with the group that like if anything good happens for anything, like um, Sadiqa Demire uh, wrote a book of essays that was, um, is up for the governor general's award. So we found that out yesterday. So, you know, there was like fire on the email of the Villanelles. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. So it's really amazing to have, a community, you know, if you haven't studied poetry, you know, maybe you'll end up learning some great stuff from other people. And it just, you know, it doesn't just support your craft, it supports your writing life. And that can be harder than most of us realize, I think, when we're setting out. So yeah, mm-hmm. super important, I think, to have uh, a writing group who can give you, you know, informed critiques and support. <laughs> mm hmm. Mm hmm.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. I I love to hear about writing groups. It's one of my (laughs) favorite things about life, (laughs) for sure. It's true. (laughs) So you have some tips for us. Yeah. Um, I came
1: across this quote that kind of sums up one of them, which I think is the main one. And it's at the beginning of uh, a book by James Wood. And he's quoting Henry James. And uh, Henry James says, there is only one recipe to care a great deal for the cookery. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's my main tip is to really, um, you know, follow the energy in your work and what it is that you really love the most about it. And don't let that get kind of tarnished or sent off course in any way. Um, it's not an easy path, you know, to be a writer. And the best way to make it worth it is to really follow the energy in your work and what it is you love about it and, and that you believe in, to really love the cookery and the and the process of it and not to get too tied up in externals, because that's the way that madness lies, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you start comparing and despairing or all the things that can put you off or Or for me, there's often been a time where it was expedient to do something, you know, where I could have made a living or been more successful that way. But it really went against what it was that I was trying to do. So I just feel like it's really important to be wary of those kinds of things and really stick to your own energy and vision. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And the other one that I thought kind of relates to it is, you know, to really get to know yourself as an artistic person. Uh, what you love and what you stand for and then to really trust yourself and believe in your vision because if you don't get to know yourself as an artistic person then it's easy to kind of think oh I'm curious about that that would be fun I'll go down that road but I mean writing a book is such a lot of effort and who knows you know how many you'll have time to do on this planet so if you're going to you know, do this crazy, (laughs) this crazy thing, if you feel really compelled to do it, um, then I think it's really important to know yourself as an artist and to really um, stand for that, you know, to trust in yourself and and not to let self-doubt get you. Um, The other thing I think is super important is to learn to metabolize disappointment and rejection. Mm -hmm. Um, because there's lots of that, right? And it doesn't necessarily mean your work is bad if it's, you know, not connecting somewhere or maybe, you know, wherever you sent it, your book, they just have accepted one that's similar. There's all kinds of things going on in the background that you don't know. So, um, different people that I know metabolize disappointment and rejection in different ways. I used to do it in really unhealthy ways, like whiskey <laughs> was one, <laughs> ice cream was another, like those are not sustainable things. Uh, another friend of mine gets Kentucky fried chicken. If she gets Kentucky fried chicken, her daughter goes, Oh, oh <laughs> you know, mommy's feeling bad. Someone else has Doritos and, and cigarettes, you know, oh, boy. like, <laughs> Yeah, I would say like, if you start out with those kinds of things, maybe like think of something more sustainable. So for me, I love to go for a walk. So I'll go for a walk or, you know, like do something like that, that you actually really enjoy that isn't kind of, you know, something you can continue to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And the flip side of this is of metabolizing disappointment and rejection. Um, You know, so like, just even have a list of where you're sending things and just like, like it, you're a machine, just send it to the next one without even thinking about it, right? Um, but celebrating each and every small win is really important too. So that's a thing that I really um, neglected. Like, I would kind of, things would happen that were good, but they weren't as good as I wanted them to be. Or, you know, I thought, what's the big deal about that? But what I've realized is, you know, celebrating yourself and your wins and celebrating in community um, is really great. Like, you have to, Keep hope alive, you know, and you have to make a big deal of these things because, you know, like another friend has said that there's um, one letter of difference between the word waiting and writing. Mm. And so, you know, there is a lot of waiting, a lot of nothing happening, and a lot of you working, you know, underground. So um, super important to really charge yourself up and keep yourself uh, excited about it and celebrate your wins. I don't even know how many that is, but I have one more. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> so the other this, this one kind of relates uh, to the one I was just talking about, about celebrating every small win. And it kind of relates to the metabolizing disappointment and not doing it in unhealthy ways. Um, really feed your well. So don't get tunnel vision and let yourself get, like, um, I think it was George Orwell. He went to the Isle of Jura to finish 1984 because he said that all the journalism and all the, extra work he was doing to survive had left him like a sucked orange.
0: <laughs>
1: oh, okay. so, so, yeah. so don't let yourself get like a sucked orange. So feed you well, you know, move, breathe inspire yourself and i have a suggestion for that there's these videos on youtube that are a bbc series called what do artists do all day and it's these fantastic little documentaries that you can just watch at lunch they're about half an hour long with these artists talking about their process and following them around so there's things like that that you can do just to keep yourself inspired and you know on the keep hope alive uh theme I like to send a crazy fishing hook into the universe like once a month or so. So just something that's on your mind, you know, like I thought, oh, I'd love to go to the McDowell colony. So I applied, I didn't get in, (laughs) but like I do stuff like that all the time, just throwing these fishing hooks of things that I would really like to make happen into the universe without much thought, Mm -hmm. just to kind of see what comes back can be a really great way to keep uh, excitement and, and momentum and, you know, really recognizing that plumbing your life experiences in your work is hard work in ways that are often not acknowledged, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It can make you vulnerable, it can put you in opposition to the everyday world. So I used to say there was three F's that I was always like feeling bad about when I was working on, you know, down my rabbit hole, um, doing my work which was friends family and finances right mm-hmm. like i always felt like i needed more time for all those things but i just had to kind of do my work so you have to really be kind to yourself and realize the everyday world is not going to like the fact that <laughs> necessarily that you're down your rabbit hole trying to do your work and you know you really need to develop a deep compassion for yourself i would say um you know, and just forgive yourself for all the things that you think you did wrong or whatever, and not let self doubt get to you, like, focus on filling the well and try to minimize the negatives, I would say, Mm -hmm. getting their hooks into you. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, now I want to take one of your workshops.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They're good fun, that's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) But it's things we don't think we should spend the time on, right? And like, it's, it's it's interesting. Like it's, in my experience, it's been the best time I've ever spent. In fact, it's been responsible for me being able to do what I'm doing now, which feels like the place I wanted to be in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it's really a strange thing, the way that that transformative effect of giving yourself time and space um, can change things. Because when you change inside, the outer stuff starts to change in ways that you can't explain or predict, in my experience and many people's experience. So Yeah. So don't make your life a hell. Still enjoy (laughs) your life. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and it actually does help you to get your work done. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And enjoy your people around you. It's
1: Absolutely. Having community is just crucial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely crucial. It's one of the joys, you know, like what my friend and I, um, we haven't been able to have book launches because of the pandemic. Every time we tried to organize one, um, you know, the pandemic would increase or something. So uh, on Sunday, we found a barn that a friend has and said that we could let, borrow it for a party. Uh, so we're having our book launch actually both of us are ecw authors and we're having a book launch up in this barn (laughs) and we'll be able to kind of you know invite people in so yeah that's a lovely part of it and the weird part of it right so you're down Mm -hmm. your rabbit hole for big parts of it and then you know you emerge and can celebrate the creation of your of your book and even though it seems sometimes like it's as far away from getting published as the moon is to travel to you know like mm-hmm. it, it does happen in incremental steps and it requires a lot of resolution um uh, but it's a very joyous thing uh when when you've actually pulled it off and you're celebrating you know your your uh work with other people so it's not all uh down the rabbit hole or working in the salt mines mm-hmm. As another friend puts it <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> Oh, it was just so lovely to have this chat. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I just, I got so much out of it. It was great.
1: Oh, I'm so glad, Julian. Thank you. It was really fun to talk. <laughs> well, thank you. And,
0: uh, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. If you're interested in writing nonfiction, The University of King's College MFA in Creative Nonfiction might be for you. Find out more at ukings.ca slash mfa. And if you'd like to hear more book-related conversations, check out Bookings, the podcast of our friends at the King's Co-op bookstore. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Kirstine McLeod for talking to us. Her latest book, In Praise of Retreat, Finding Sanctuary in the Modern World, is available from ECW Press. Further reading is produced by the University of King's College MFA Program in Creative Nonfiction. Our editor is Samantha Hepperly. Music by Pete Johnston. Graphics by Mike Smith. I'm your host, Jillian Turnbull. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.